that one of the biggest failings of our culture is that we culturally do not like to own our stuff. For a long time, we learned that we should never let, people should never see us sweat, right? We always put on the power suit, the power tie. We have it all together. Even if we're wrong, we don't want you to tell you that we're wrong because that would diminish our position. That's a, an American cultural value. I mean, when have you ever heard a politician get up and just say, hey, I got it right out wrong? For every one of us, there has been a moment of excitement where we make a promise or plan to do something, but later that thing loses its luster. As we'll hear today with Joseph's brothers, it's important to be measured in our speech. As Pastor Daniel explains it, when Joseph's brothers make a rash oath, their intentions may be good, but haven't come from a place of wisdom. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Genesis, chapter 44, verse 1 with part one of his message entitled, Brothers. As we continue our study here through the book of Genesis, we are winding the book of Genesis down. Don't worry, though, because we still got 65 more books to go. So in case you were worrying, what's going to happen when Genesis is over? We're just going to go to Exodus and we'll keep on going. You guys are excited, aren't you? You guys just can't wait for Leviticus. I know it. You guys are like, man, what's Pastor Daniel going to say in Leviticus? It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Now, we broke off right in the middle. This is one of those, if, if we were doing like a nighttime primetime miniseries, you know, we broke off this part of the narrative, part of the story, right in the middle. At this point, all 12 brothers, the sons of Jacob, are all together sitting around a table. But what's interesting is the only one who actually knows that they're all together is Joseph. Joseph's been in Egypt for a number of years now. He's risen in power. He sits right underneath Pharaoh in a place of power in Egypt. All of his brothers are there. They're feasting at Joseph's house, but they don't know that it's Joseph. It had been many years, no doubt he was dressed as an Egyptian. They don't even realize it. At the end of chapter 43, remember we found that they were sitting together and Benjamin, the youngest brother, Joseph's younger brother, but the youngest of the 12 sons, he was given the place of honor. He was given five times the portion of everybody else. And it was interesting because, remember we ended in chapter 43, and I made the point that we need to recover the idea of celebration within the body of Christ. And it was such an interesting thing because I didn't realize that I was being prophetic, but I was because when I got to Kenya and we started worshiping, it was celebratory. They like to dance and, and make much of the Lord. Now, I, I realize it's cult, there's cultural differences and we value reservedness in, in uh, our American culture, or some of us do. But it was just a cool, it was a cool thing to see because I think as Western Christians, you know, we don't want to sin, but we also don't want to make the things of God somber either. 
So we want to find that healthy place of celebration in our faith. And what's interesting is that because of our concern, and it's a, and it's a righteous concern, we don't want to dishonor God. But at the same time, sometimes I think that in our desires to not dishonor God, we also miss out on really rejoicing in who God is as well. So we want to find that sweet spot. We don't want sin, but we do want to celebrate. And it's interesting that Joseph draws his brothers together and they're celebrating. They're feasting, they're eating and drinking, and they're being merry with one another. Now, let's pick up Genesis 44, verse 1. It says, And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them. And he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. In verse 8, look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be your, my Lord's servants. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Joseph is tough here, isn't he? Now, remember we made the case that depending on how a commentator wants to package this, some people see Joseph as being sinful and vindictive by giving his brothers a hard time. Other ones see him being Joseph being righteous to see if his brothers have had a change of heart. But either way, it's almost the exact same thing as happened the first time. Remember, they bought grain, but Joseph sent their money back. Now Joseph sends them away with their grain and their money, but he also takes his silver cup and puts it in Benjamin's, in Benjamin's bag. And so once they leave, they get sent away, they get out from the city, and Joseph sends his steward and says, I want you to go get him, to bring him back again. Now, what is interesting, and, and, you know, we've been seeing some of these things as we've been going through this passage, but... Notice the simple obedience of Joseph's steward. The steward is Joseph's servant. Joseph asks him to do something, and he does it. Now, remember I've made the case that Joseph is a type or a picture or a symbol of Jesus. His brothers bowed down to him. It's interesting that his brothers rejected him, but ultimately bowed down to him. The brothers didn't recognize him as they're sitting around the table, much like the disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize Jesus. But one of the things I like about the steward is the steward is just simply obedient. And it's just interesting. I was just studying it today in 1 John chapter 1, how obedience is 
the way that we're supposed to live. We're supposed to simply do what we're asked to do. As many times as we find this in the Bible, and we find it all the time, I want to bring it up because so much of our spiritual lives are simply about just being obedient, doing the things that God asks us to do, not doing the things that God tells us not to do. And let's be honest, most of us are rebellious children, aren't we? We know what God's word says. We know what he asks of us. But then we want to fight against it. We want to push against it. But come on, Lord. I always think of Pastor Romaine of uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, who's with the Lord. He used to tell people, you got yeah, but disease. Because everything is yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And let's be honest, as, as children of God, don't we, we all struggle with yeah, but disease a little bit, don't we? Some of us more than others. But so much of the Christian life, so much of blossoming and growing in our faith comes from the act of simple obedience. The steward just does what he's told. Why? Because the steward is just a steward. And you and I, if you remember from the beginning of the book of Genesis, we were created for stewardship. It's God's world. They're God's gifts. They're God's talents, and we are simply asked to be stewards of them, which means we direct them at the good pleasure of our master. And so I love the steward's simple obedience here. He just does what he's asked. Now, notice also in verse 9, where his brothers here make what I would consider to be a rash oath. They say, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. That's a rash oath, wasn't it? And it reminds me once again that our Bibles teach us that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. So we have to be careful to make not make promises, to not promise things that are irrational in the heat of the moment. Oftentimes when you don't know what to say, as I've said before, we don't, she just says, shouldn't say anything. Because oftentimes we make these rash oaths. We say, hey, this is the way it's going to be. And we want to be measured with that. We want to be measured with our speech. Now, it's interesting. The steward says, listen, whoever it's found with, he's going to come with me. The rest of you are blameless. The steward didn't even receive their rash oath. But the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And so they all head back together into the city. Now, picking up in verse 14. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. And he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now, notice, Joseph is talking about this cup in which he does divination. Now, it was very common in 
in Egyptian culture for them to use, do the different um, magic or, or the pagan rituals using cups and things like reading tea leaves is, is a modern form of that. Um, a lot of commentators make a big deal over, even though they're talking about this cup as Joseph's cup for divination, that we never find out that he actually uses it. A lot of commentators, and I tend to agree with them, would say that Joseph is most concerned about his brother's well-being. That's why he's trying to get Benjamin to stay with him. He's trying to keep Benjamin from the wrath of his brothers. Whether that's the case or not, again, I, I, I lean that way, but as I've always said, where the Bible is silent, we should be also. But when trying to interpret these things, you say, well, what exactly what's going on here? But notice in, in verse 16 and 17, we find it's Judah and Joseph. Judah and Joseph. And remember when we started the brother series, I made the point that it goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then out of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph gets the most kind of press time in the Bible, but Judah is really the, the brother through whom the Messianic line is. Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So now you find Judah here taking the forefront in his family in regards to this, and it's interesting that he says that God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Judah confesses that God knows of their iniquity. And it's interesting that they hadn't done anything wrong in this case, but Judah is speaking about the way they sold Joseph in slavery. So we see here the beginnings of repentance, at least verbally. They're acknowledging their fallenness. Now it's interesting that biblically speaking, our own acknowledgement of our mistakes is the prerequisite for receiving forgiveness. That we need to own it. The idea of confession means to agree alongside. So when we confess our sins, we are agreeing with God that what we have done is wrong. God already says it's wrong, but we confess it out and say, what I have done is wrong. And we find that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I believe in a lot of ways that one of the biggest failings of our culture is that we culturally do not like to own our stuff. For a long time, we learned that we should never let, people should never see us sweat, right? We always put on the power suit, the power tie. We have it all together. Even if we're wrong, we don't want you to tell you that we're wrong because that would diminish our position. That's a, an American cultural value. I mean, when have you ever heard a politician get up and just say, hey, I got it right out wrong? Right? Me neither. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. One of these days, Lord willing. But you don't get elected if you tell people you made a mistake, do you? So as a culture, we don't own our stuff. But we need to. We need to get to a place where we're humble enough before God that we can say, you know what? I don't have it all together. I did it wrong. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Judah's getting there. He's getting there. He says, God knows. God knows our iniquity. God realizes. Now look at what happens in verse 18. It says, Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asks his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother. And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a child 
of his old age who is young. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. And so it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore... When I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with me since his life is bound up with the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Now, this is beautiful because now we finally have Judah interceding on behalf of his brother. Notice, this is all a picture for us. Because Judah is standing in the place of his brother Benjamin. He's saying, yes, you did find the cup, but let me stand in his place instead. Let me be a substitute. And isn't that what Jesus did for us? Jesus stood in our place. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, although we should. Jesus died the death that we deserved in our place. The Bible calls this, or scholars call this, penal substitutionary atonement. You got to love scholars. They go to school for a long time, so give them the grace with big words. Penal means it has to do with punishment, substitutionary. Jesus in the place of somebody else, atonement. That word atonement's a great word. It's really the word at one meant, slammed together. So Jesus stands in our place, receives our punishment that we can become to unity, to oneness with the Father again. And Judah here is foreshadowing that. He's saying, look, yes, Benjamin should be here based on what just happened. But my father, my father's life is bound up with, with this boy. So instead of taking Benjamin, please take me. Please take me. Now, I don't know about you all, but the reality of penal substitutionary atonement, the reality that Jesus took our place, this is what makes the gospel good news. This is what makes the gospel good news. Because Jesus knew that we could not bear the weight of the punishment that we deserve. Now, I know people, we live in a day and age where a lot of people, I'm sure people in this room, you don't believe that. You're saying, why would, 
you know, why would God hold me to account? Why? How could you say that I have not lived up to it? The problem is not with our view of humanity. We all know that we fail. But the issue lies on the reality of God's holiness. Most people don't realize how perfect God is. We judge ourselves on a sliding scale, right? Like I always say, it's like because of Charles Manson or Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer, they throw the curve off. And we say, look, I'm not as bad as Charles Manson, so I must be okay. But God doesn't grade us on a curve. God grades us on what does a perfect life look like lived out from your life. And in that, with that standard, we all fall short, don't we? We all fall short. And so God needed, God needed, because he knew it was a debt we could never pay. God needed to send someone to pay it on our behalf. That's the gospel. To stand in our place. And what's interesting is that if you really think about it, because I'm sure there's some people in here today, you have an intellectual issue with the gospel. But if you have an insurmountable debt, a debt that is so large that you could never pay it, right? And you know you could never pay it. Like, imagine if you had a $16 trillion debt. That's an arbitrary number, right? So if you have a $16 trillion debt, anybody want to volunteer? Anyone can pay for that? Anyone Anyone in here? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? No, I didn't think so, right? But if you have that kind of a debt and you realize that that debt is insurmountable and then somebody rolls in who can actually pay it, is it illogical to let them pay it if they wanted to? Uh, hello? No. That's totally logical, right? If you have an insurmountable debt and somebody says, look, for love's sake, I want to take care of that debt for you, that is just plain logic. It makes no sense to let them pass by. No, no, no. I don't think my debt is really $16 trillion. It really isn't. Or, no, no, I'll be able to work it out. We'll tax people more or less. We'll do trade deficit. We have all these things we're going to try and do. We're going to work it out. Logic would dictate if you have an insurmountable debt and somebody wants to pay it for you for love's sake, that you simply say, thank you very much. You live a life that says, I want to repay that debt, even though I can't. I just want to live a life in response to such a great gift. And that is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best news that humanity has ever heard. It's not good advice. It's not a new way to do self-help. It is the purposes and plans of God that we are not ashamed of. Because the debt that Jesus paid for us is so huge that we say, God, we can never repay you. We're just going to live lives of gratitude. And because you repaid a debt for me that was so great, I'm going to spend my life serving everybody else just as a way of saying thank you, God, because that's the best I can do. And that is why the gospel for thousands of years has gripped the hearts of humanity. A God so good, so benevolent, that he would pay a debt that we never could pay. That we never could pay. By letting Jesus stand in our place. Jesus is real. 
Joseph gave his brothers a hard time when he put a silver cup in Benjamin's bag, but it brought them back to him. Although they hadn't done anything wrong in this instance, they owned up to their iniquity, the beginning of repentance for what they had done to Joseph. We know that God doesn't need our money, but he uses our finances to help further his kingdom. We want to invite you to partner with us and help expand God's kingdom through Jesus is Real Radio. Your monthly or one-time gift will allow us to continue to grow our radio ministry in other parts of the world, sharing the life-changing experience of knowing that Jesus is real. Simply log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and select Partner from the main menu. Hey everybody, Pastor Daniel Fusco here from Jesus Is Real Radio. I'm so excited. My book, Honestly, Getting Real About Jesus and Our Messy Lives is available right now. It is released and God is using this book to be a message of hope to people who realize that life is messy, but Jesus is real. So get the book now. You can download it online. Go to honestlybook.com or wherever books are sold and where you like to get it. You and your friends are going to be blessed to get to read Honestly. I'm so excited about it. God bless you. Place a marker in your Bibles as we join Pastor Daniel next time when he continues through Joseph's reunion with his brothers and how he remains obedient to God throughout every circumstance in his life and faithful to God's plan. Well, that's all the time we have for today's broadcast. On behalf of Pastor Daniel and the entire production team, we want to invite you to join us again for the next edition of Jesus is Real Radio. Jesus is real.